Hello, and welcome to pairing episode 9, The Two Towers, part 2. This second episode in our discussion of The Two Towers is the fifth installment in our Middle Earth and Old World Wine series, wherein I, your host, Emma Sherjarko, pair each place in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien with a different wine region in Europe. And I also assign many characters to the grape that matches their personality. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I do recommend checking that out first, as well as the other episodes in the series. Winston and I were really surprised by how much we enjoyed listening back to this episode. It's been a few months since we recorded it, so it was fun to go back and listen. We talk a lot about some of our favorite places, Spain and Germany, and we, we argue and we go on tangents. It's, it's a really fun one. I hope you enjoy it. Before we begin, I just wanted to say, holy smokes, thank you all so much for all the love that we've been seeing on the internet the past few weeks. Thank you to those of you who have been with the show and have been sharing it, and thank you to those of you who just started listening. I'm so excited to see that some of you are getting excited, so please keep hitting us up on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Pairing Podcast. Keep sending me your pairing ideas, requests, and recommendations for episodes, either on social media, or you can email us at pairingpodcast at gmail.com. For those of you who heard me on the Spirits episode and decided to come over and listen, thank you so much. I hope you're enjoying. The last two weeks have been more successful download-wise for us than the previous six weeks combined, and that makes us so happy because that means that more people are listening in. So thank you all so much. Keep sharing us with your friends and family and on social media. And if you have the time and if you can find it in your heart to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else, that makes a huge difference in the algorithm that moves us up in the podcast charts. Next, thank you so much to those of you who have already contributed to our Patreon. I literally cannot believe how much support we've received already. You marvelous people make me more excited than that shot of Aragorn in the Two Towers when he opens the double doors in slow-mo. Oh, man. So far, we have 11 patrons and are most of the way to our first goal, which is amazing. That's so much faster than I expected this to happen. Thank you to Rena Sarame, Kingston Liriano, William Feinstein, Magalru, Deborah Scher, Katie Steidel, Emma Cohen, Alicia Workman, Daniel Burns, Mitzrayim, and our friends at The Long Take, who are making awesome video essays critiquing film, and who also just launched a Patreon, so check them out too. Seriously, I am so blown away by how awesome and generous you all are. If you would like to join these magical beings, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcasts. We have some posts on there already that are open to the public, including audio extras from our last episode, The Two Towers Part 1, and a video of Winston performing a love song he wrote to Han Solo. If you'd like to join us, you can get access to posts like that and so much more for as little as $1 a month. So come join our fellowship of patrons. Without further ado, here is Episode 9, The Two Towers Part 2. One of the two towers in the two towers. Good song. Thank you. So we're going to Isengard. And so this one was a little bit of a tough pairing for me, but I decided to give it Ribera del Duero in España. 
Sounds like we're in Spain. We're in Spain now. Okay, I'm going to quote again Karen McNeil. I talked about her a bunch in the last episodes. She's the main wine author that I've been quoting because I love her. And I think the Wine Bible is a really, really wonderful guide to wine, especially for those who are a little bit more right-brained. So she describes Ribera del Duero as a harsh, dramatic climate. So there's a lot of harsh dramaticness. Yep, yep, I'm going to stand by that word that I used, which is now a word. So, oh, oh, and this is fun. So she's talking, she talks a lot about the conquistador culture and medieval roots of this, of this region and um, its incredible durability. Um, And so I'm, (laughs) and I wrote here, that's sort of equated to Saruman trying a little too hard. Like, like there's something very like medieval and conquistador about Saruman. He's like, a macho wizard sure but also uh to to be a history geek again yeah 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 um like it's appropriate that we're going to spain first because of the two towers mm-hmm. um isengard is the first right that mm-hmm. we have to deal with and the spanish civil war in the late 1930s early 1940s was basically a proxy war for the nazis um, it was where they tested out the Luftwaffe and all this stuff, mm-hmm. supporting uh, Generalissimo Franco's fascist forces against the socialist Republican forces of the legitimate government of Spain. And so that's it's it's kind of yeah, cool that we're going actually, to Spain. It's like that. Actually, early, I like that. that I like early, that. The early battle that presages yeah. the final conflict. Yeah. No, I think Saruman's got a lot of Franco in him. Actually. Also, we need to do a "For Whom the Bell Tolls" oh, episode. Oh, for sure. Because, for sure. Uh, I also I took one of my favorite professors in college, who was a Spanish professor that I took a bunch of classes with, who was also a theater geek, and so he loved that I was a theater major in his class, and so I learned a lot about Spanish theater. Blood wedding. The, well, uh, yes. But more than that, under the reign of Franco, oh. um, kind of more modern Spanish theater, which, but yes, Fred, uh, Lorca, Federico Garcia Lorca is one of my favorite playwrights ever, playwrights and poets. I can't wait to do episodes on him because it's going to be multiple. Yeah. Also, if you haven't seen the movie Spirit of the Beehive, go watch that I, shit. I don't think I've seen it. You should. Okay. So it's like, it's sort of the spiritual predecessor to um, Pan's Labyrinth. You know, the Guillermo del Toro Mm -hmm, thing mm -hmm. where it's like the little girl's fantasy life, but really she's fighting her fascist adopted father or whatever. Um, Spirit of the Beehive is very similar to that. Yeah. Yeah, I feel very much like Guillermo del Toro is kind of the cinematic equivalent to Federico Garcia Lorca. Like, I mean, obviously he's a director. He's not a playwright, but. But so one thing I talked about, I'm getting totally derailed into my... That's my job. <laughs> but so one of, one of the things that I focused on a lot in college was Federico Garcia Lorca's poetic logic. And so, so just to finish up with Isengard, um, I also wrote spicy, deep-voiced, powerful, but can be led astray, which I think is a good description of both Saruman and Ribera del Duero. Your love of the halfling's leaf has slowed your mind. <laughs> it just reminds me of when I was in Madrid. I love this story. When I was in Madrid a few years ago, I was just like, I was just walking down the street and like, you know, I don't look 
you know, I look like I could be European. A lot of people think I'm Italian, actually, when I when they meet me, they think I'm of Italian descent. But like walking down the street in Madrid, it's not like I look so different from everyone else. But apparently it was obvious that I was a tourist. And so I was just like, I was just walking down the street and I was just walk, walked past this guy and he goes, welcome to Madrid. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Speaking of spicy and deep voiced. Anyway, um, so some great producers in Ribera del Duero. Um, one of my favorites is Emilio Moro. And you can find fairly inexpensive wines from Emilio Moro. Vega Sicilia is another very important producer. And Pesquera. Pescara is also one of the one of the best, and the winemaker for that, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, he's got many other projects as well. And so you can find wines that are very close to Ribera del Duero, that are not called Ribera del Duero, that he makes. Anyway, we've got one of those right now, actually, in in our quote-unquote cellar. Cellar? We don't have a cellar. We, we don't have We don't have a cellar. We live on a third floor. <laughs> <laughs> in our... In our rack. Yeah, on our, our rack. I guess it's just a wine rack. Okay, so now is a perfect time to pair Saruman and Wormtongue. And you're going to really enjoy this because I'm pairing Saruman with Tempranillo. My favorite. favorite grape. It's Winston's favorite grape. So, Why does he get my favorite grape? Well, because let's not let, let's give Saruman some credit. He may be evil, but he's still awesome. Well, he's smart, but he's like, he's so... He, to quote uh, John Mulaney, has the moral backbone of a chocolate eclair. I don't want to yes. give him Tempranillo, although Tempranillo does have some nice chocolatiness to it. It does, it enjoy. does. And I, and but you just think of Christopher Lee's chocolatey, chocolatey deep he voice. He does have a beautiful voice. Fun fact, uh, Christopher Lee was also a huge Tolkien aficionado, and he is the only member of the cast and crew of The Lord of the Rings, I believe, who actually met Tolkien. Oh. He also really wanted to play Gandalf. Right. But he was kind of pigeonholed into playing the bad guy, which is fair, and he did an awesome job. Well, he's a little less spry than Ian McKellen, too. Yeah. Like Gandalf he, had to really... Yeah, Gandalf had to be a little more physical, and, yeah. and I think Christopher Lee was a good 10, 15, yeah. maybe... 20 years older than... Well, like in the Star Wars movies that were being filmed at the same time, which may have also been a part of it, but um, they actually had to put his head on a younger man's body for all the action scenes. because Saruman? Yeah. Oh. Uh, Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee could not perform the action scenes, which makes total sense, right, at his age. But so they actually digitally put his face onto the body of like a 40-year-old stunt double for both Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Let's so because of all of that that you were talking about all of Christopher Lee's great accomplishments, let's give Christopher Lee Tempranillo. Come on. Also Saruman before he just kind of fell off the fell off the wagon right at the end there, but he was one of he was the greatest witter, wizard 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 <laughs> um he was the chief of the white council and blah 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 and only once he found one of the palantirs and he became seduced by sauron did he become evil and his power was sort of seduced but i think tempranillo is a perfect grape for him because i think he does have so much power and so much magic and beauty and all that but just got just Got lit just a little bit astray. Just a little bit astray. Which I'm not saying Tempranillo has, but 
Tempered he is for Saruman before he became evil. Okay, yeah. Okay? Yeah. Okay, All can, right. we, can right. we be sort of on board with when this? When he's Saruman the White, not Saruman of many colors. Exactly. Okay. Which they did not do in the movie. Which okay. I think is fair because it would be a little like Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat kind of thing going on. All right. But, I, 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 yeah. All right. All right. All right. Let, let's, let's let that lie. I would love to hear other suggestions for great pairings for Saruman. Um, uh, can I can I just tell you what yeah. I yeah what okay. what's your what's your thought my I think of Saruman uh, I think Merlot and I'll tell you why it's much maligned you know and 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 mostly by people who saw sideways or like don't know anything about wine right um, it's much maligned but it actually does have a lot of nuance and complexity to it there's uh, you know there's a a great deal of flavor it's very robust you know when you get a good one but it does it can kind of fall victim and i think part of this is just like anti-california bias mm-hmm. in the wine world but it can fall victim to sort of simple arguments about blandness and things like that so that's why i would give him Merlot. i agree with you 100 percent. problem is i already gave the same argument for boromir <laughs> <laughs> whoops <laughs> Also, yes. Which is also appropriate. Also, yes. Yeah, also, yes. Like, uh, Boromir is nowhere near as evil as Saruman, but it's sort of the same thing where yeah. he's like, his reputation is bad and Merlot's reputation is bad. But because you said Merlot, I really do think that, like, specifically Bordeaux is a great pairing for Saruman. Also, because it's like, it's the wine for stuffy old rich white men. It's also it's also a great wine for sure, but sorry sorry to those of you who love Merlot, but I mean who who love Bordeaux, which I also do, but it like Bordeaux is kind of a, a status thing and a class thing, and Saruman to me is very much like I'm a rich old white man and I have the power, so I think Bordeaux Bordeaux is a and Merlot being one of the. Uh, primary grapes of Bordeaux. So I I do think you're right. But for the sake of the continuity of this episode, um, I can't I can't give him Merlot because I already gave Merlot to somebody oh, else. I understand. I understand. All right. Actually, Tempranillo. We're going with Tempranillo. If we, if we backtrack, I also think that Tempranillo could be a good pairing for Boromir. So let's let's remember that. But we're moving on. Wormtongue was really easy for me. Gewürztraminer. Totally. Speaking of sweet wine, kind of sickly sweet, perfumey, poison, worm tongue. Gewürztraminer also happens to be a fantastic grape, but but it does it does it's very distinctive. It usually is sweet. It's very kind of thick, viscous, perfumey, floral. Um, it's not for everybody, but it does have this little bit of spiciness to it, which, as we know, Wormtongue's got this little bit of spiciness left in him because he ends up killing Saruman. And that's true, yeah. yeah. But that's not until Return of the King, right? When they come back to the Shire. Yeah, in the book. Yeah. yeah. Um. So that's that. So next we transition into the second half of the book which is the Frodo and Sam and then Gollum through line of the book. Uh, yeah. Because in the movie, everything's happening simultaneously. In the book, the first half of the book is Aragorn, Gimli, Legolas, Merry, and Pippin. And, um, and the second half of the book is Frodo, Sam, and Gollum traveling through Mordor or, you know, around Mordor. 
So the first place they go is the Emin Muil, which is just like this kind of craggy, rocky landscape that they have to traverse to get closer to where they're going. And this was another tough one for me to pair, and I ended up giving it the Languedoc, which is a very large region in southern France. And my reasoning is just that, you know, like the Emmanuel is supposed to kind of go on forever, and the Languedoc is very a very large region. And so my my feeling is like, well, you go through a lot of ups and downs, a lot of different things happen while Frodo and Sam are in the Emmanuel. And so there's lots of different types and styles of wine within the Languedoc. Okay. That's that's sort of my thinking. One of one of my favorite grapes coming from this region is Picpoul. Picpoul is another white grape that nobody knows about. It's very light, very bright, very fresh, very dry. Um, I think Picpoul is actually a really good grape to be drinking during this part of the book. It's got a lot of minerality to it. There's a lot of rock in the Emmanuel. Um, and my favorite producer of Picpoul, um, which I can't find their Picpoul anymore, is actually Chateau Maris. And um, they're totally awesome. They make a lot of great wine. And their winery is made entirely from hemp. Hmm. Yeah. It's very cool. Very weird. But go check out Chateau Marius if you see any of their wines. They're usually very affordable. Um, Carignan is another grape that's found a lot in um, in the Languedoc. It's a red grape. Kind of spicy, earthy. And, uh, and nobody really thinks about it otherwise. Um, so that's another really good one. Next, we go to the Dead Marshes, and here is where your World War I analogy is really going to come into play, because I think that the Dead Marshes, the chapter and in the movie, is really where it's most clearly drawn from Tolkien's experience in World War I, whether that was conscious for him or not. Yeah, I think Mordor and its borderlands generally are supposed to resemble the Western Front. Definitely, definitely. And so... So the wine region, as much as I hate to do this because it's giving it a bad reputation, but the wine region I'm pairing with this is Germany, and specifically want to talk a little bit about the region of the Mosul in Germany, which is probably the best known wine region in Germany. Um, and the reason why is mostly because of this World War II relationship and just because a lot happened. World War One or World War II? I'm sorry, World War One. I'm sorry, World War I. Uh, and and the relationship there. I don't want to suggest that uh, German wine is bad in any way because no. it is one of the finest wine regions in the world. And as often will happen as we move forward and things get darker and more grim for Frodo and Sam, I will pair some of my favorite wine regions with the places that they have to go through because that's what I want to drink. Right. While the story gets darker, I want to drink better wine. Also, so, like, Germany legit um, suffered a lot during both world oh wars. Oh, my God. And, I mean, oh my God. Yeah. certainly in the First World War, I think there's a very good argument to be made that while Germany may have sort of mobilized, I mean, they didn't even mobilize first. Russia mobilized first. But mm-hmm. I don't think they were necessarily the bad guys they were just sort of very cold calculating in German about mm-hmm. it, where they were like, well, if we're going to go to war, we're in, the, we're in the center of these two giant powers. We got to knock one of them out real fast. Yeah. And they were like, if it's going to ha- if it's going to pop off, we got to pop off, you know? Yeah. So, like, I don't necessarily think that, I mean, the Kaiserreich army, the 
World War One German army was is still one of the best in the world, you know. And also now Germany is uh, the leader of the free world. So yeah, oh, God <laughs> like, bless you, Angela Merkel. Yep, <laughs> life um, coming full circle. PhD from Munich. Awesome. Eastern Germany. Awesome. Yeah, she's super Oh, yeah. Smart. Oh, man. She's amazing. Ugh. Um, but so anyway, not to get too derailed since I've gotten derailed. Sorry. Sorry. Derailed enough. Um, no, no. It's not your fault. So like I mentioned earlier, German wines and German wine law and Austri- Austrian wines are complicated. German wines are like 10 times more complicated. So I'm not going to get into German wine law at this point because I think it's too much and it's going to bog me down so selfishly i'm not going to go into detail about german wines but as we talked a little bit about earlier um the primary grape of germany is riesling riesling can be sweet or dry the reason why it's often vinified sweet is because it has such high acidity and to balance the acidity you need some sugar so boom there you go um and that's why Riesling has gotten a reputation as kind of like a sweet wine that people don't want to drink. Riesling is probably my favorite white grape in the world. I love Riesling. Besides maybe Chenin Blanc. Those two are my favorite. And they're both grapes that are high in acidity and usually are vinified with some residual sugar to them. So there you go. In the Mosul region, so there's the Mosul River, and there's all these vineyards that are on these really, really steep slopes. They're really iconic in this region of Germany. Um, I would love to go there sometime. Just just saying. And so we're in the dead marshes, and there's something about, like, the river, the marshes, the steep slopes that makes me think think of that. And also, this is a really creepy part of the book and part of the movie, and I want to be drinking some of the best wine in the world while I read it and watch it. And something a little bright. Yeah. Too. <laughs> something Something bright to brighten up the darkness. And so... Um, some of my favorite producers, some of the best producers, certainly not all of them, are Von Buell. And by the way, Von Buell produces a wine called Bone Dry Riesling, which is a Riesling that has literally, I think, no residual sugar to it, and it's fabulous. So if you're afraid of Riesling because you think it's sweet, go find that wine. It will change your life. Steinmetz is another one of my favorite producers, and I've gotten to try lots of lots of their wines, which is great. From sweet to very, very dry. Lights is another great producer. And Robert Weil. Those are some... Uh, oh, and uh, Dr. Lucen. I forgot I forgot to put on Dr. Lucen on here. But yeah, Dr. Lucen is a great... You find a lot of doctor producers in the hmm. Mosul. So, very uh, very appropriate. Yeah, yeah, doctor. The doctor. The doctor. <laughs> All right. Okay. So we're moving on to Ithilien, which is kind of that little pretty hill country just outside of Mordor where Faramir... That's where they meet Faramir. Where they meet Faramir, and he brings them there, and there's that nice kind of um, the the waterfall there and the caves and stuff like that. And so the region I'm giving to Ithelian is Friuli. Friuli is the most northeast region in Italy. Um, Its full name is Friuli Venezia Giulia, and really some of the best wines in the world specifically white wines but often but also a lot of red wines just truly truly wonderful coming out of this region frasca which is this famous restaurant in boulder that every psalm comes to moves to boulder to work at and it's a truly spectacular restaurant we had we had dinner there a few months ago and it was really really wonderful inspired the kill bill episode it did it did 
the food inspiration for Frasca is from Friuli, from this region. This is what I wrote. Um, beautiful hill country, not the best known region ever, but beautiful and makes some of the best Italian wine. I think I was starting by talking about Ithilien and then I just ended up talking about Friuli, so there you go. Um, Friuli Venezia Giulia refers to Caesar. Giulia being Julius Caesar, I think. He's of the Julii family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but it has some relationship to him. I just wrote that, and I'll have to go into more detail figuring out why that is. Um, white wine in a world of red wine. Um, it's got some of the best Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Friulano, Ribola Gialla, Merlot, Scuopatino, and Cabernet Franc in the world. I also, last night, got to pour with Grovner, which is one of the most iconic and best wine producers in all of Italy, but specifically in Friuli, and learned about the grape Pignolo, which is a red grape uh, coming from that region. Very cool. So some great producers, so Grovner, talk more about Grovner in a different episode because Grovner is like very unique. Petrusa, Ronco de la Petule, I've gotten to meet the winemaker for Ronco de la Petule several times. Um, he's, he's wonderful. Miani, Bastianich and Conte. Those are some of my favorite producers there. Obviously, I've got a little bit of a bias towards Friuli, um, but Friuli is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful wine. Right on. I think, by the way, the, um, there were a lot of Gallic tribes in the northern part of Italy uh-huh. at, at the well, time it's of Julius right on, Caesar. It's right on the border of Slovenia as well. Yeah, so, so <clears throat> that was kind of Caesar's main thing was invading all of Gallic territory, but starting with you know, northwestern Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I think, you know, that would that would have been part of the sort of the Julii. He was the governor of Gaul, and that m- might have included that region. I can I can um, look it up because yeah. because there's there is an actual explanation for why it's related to Julius Caesar. But but you're probably right. You're on the right track. Um, so next we've got a great pairing for Faramir. Poor Faramir. I know. I know. So he 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 really does. And so (laughs) the grape that I gave to him is Mouved. I love Mouved. 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 I I you know you look at it and how it's spelled and I used to say Mourvedre. If you say that to any French person, you will get corrected. (laughs) <laughs> corrected whether uh politely or not so much <laughs> um but mulved is apparently roughly the pronunciation it's also known as monastrel in spain so here's my little explanation on uh why this is the grape for faramir talk about the ultimate forgotten grape why don't you <laughs> It's usually only a blending grape especially in france until it finds its right climate i.e. Spain, where it becomes monastrel. So basically, you never see 100% Mouved in, in France. It's always used as a blending grape. But in Spain, you do see 100% monastrel, which is the same grape. Ah. Um, it's smooth. It's not overly complex, but it's very versatile. Um, it really completes the package when it comes to like Rhone-style blends and stuff like that. So Farmer is really a team player. Um, and then I wrote here, a grape that has daddy issues. Yeah, and, which... <laughs> and it's not, it's, you know, it's not given enough credit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not. And which Farmer also is not. He really, he has a hard, he has a rough go of it. Yeah, he's a good guy. Until the end, when he finds, I was going to say Eowyn. I mean, 
because they get married at the end of the whole book. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. they do. Which kind of feels like a cop-out for me, but maybe not. Maybe it's the... You're like, well, there's there's a woman here. Well, no, there's a really beautiful chapter where they're both in the House of Healing in The Return of the King after the big battle, and and you sort of watch them fall in love because she was in love with Aragorn and all this and, and it's 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 very it's very sweet actually Aww. watching them fall in love so i take it back i like that i like that choice okay last but not least for the two hour for the two hours <laughs> freudian <laughs> slip because <laughs> that, that's how long it feels like i've been talking um no the, for the two towers so as we mentioned earlier um in the movie they choose to put kirith ungol and um the the interaction with shelob the giant spider in uh in the third movie but it actually happens at the end of the second book and is totally devastating <laughs> when you're like did frodo just die what? What? Huh? Oh, okay. Okay, he's not dead. <laughs> <laughs> Frodo lives is apparently um, a, a thing that was on many, like, n- magazine and newspaper publications when The Return of the King came out, um, which is awesome. But so the the wine region or style um, that I gave to Kirith Ungal is Amarone. And so Amarone actually comes from the same region of Valpolicella, and we talked about Valpolicella before, you may remember or not, in Moria. That's the that's the region that I gave to Moria when we talked about the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, but Amarone is very distinct. Amarone is a red wine that is very, very high in alcohol, usually fif- between 15 and 16% alcohol, and um, it's the way it's made is that the grapes are picked and dried and and that leads to this very like intense almost sweet almost almost like a dessert wine it's it's not sweet technically and so it's not a dessert wine but it's as close as you can get do they do that noble rot thing with Amarone? No, that's a different thing. And that that's a thing that often happens with sweet wine. But with Amarone, what happens is they dry the grapes um, on these bamboo shelving units or they're hung drying in the air, just like Shelob hangs her victims in her web. <sighs> yeah. Terrifying. Totally, Yucky. totally terrifying. Uh, Sheila would totally drink Amarone. She's just like, this is all I want. This is this rich, dense, dark wine. Amarone is a wine that you have to have with food. If you drink it on its own, it's just like, it's too much. It's yeah. too much. It's fantastic wine. It's truly, truly wonderful, fantastic yeah. wine, but it's too much on its own. Yeah, but you don't want syrup without pancakes, no exactly. matter how good the syrup is. Good metaphor, Winston. Gotta have the pancakes with your Amarone. Actually, now I want to pour Amarone on pancakes. And with that, we'll be back next time. (laughs) No, just to quickly finish up. Um, So I mentioned these producers earlier with talking about Valpolicella, but Allegrini and Quintarelli are two of the greatest Amarone producers. So check them out. And um, don't get caught in a giant spider's web. Cheers. Until next time. Pairing was created, produced, hosted, and edited by Emma Sherjarko, with music, audio recording, and co-hosting by Winston Shaw, and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. If you'd like more information, links, and clarifications on what we talked about this episode, 
please check out the show notes and visit our blog on our website at thepairingpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month to get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website or on any social media platform. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, cheers.